Open your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is a familiar passage we're going to read today, verses 5 through 11. You've got a, uh, in your bulletin there a handout, and you can follow along and take notes uh, if you like. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we pause in our service this morning with your word open before us, and we worship you. And these verses and the others we will look at today raise up in us a greater desire to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we praise you for what you have done for us in Christ, which we will celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper later. And even as we open your word and look at what you have done for us in Jesus, we praise you. I pray that you would help us this morning not to be distracted. I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, that you would minister to us and bless us, that you would be lifted up in the preaching of your word as you've been lifted up in song. So we pray for your blessing in Jesus' name, amen. What uh, image comes to mind for you when you think of Christmas or when you think of Advent? What are the pictures that pop into your mind? What are the things that uh, maybe first uh, show up in your brain if I were to say the word Christmas or the word Advent to you? What would come into your mind? Maybe, maybe it's a Christmas tree. That's the first thing that pops into your mind. Maybe it's uh, opening gifts. That's a pretty early thing that pops into a lot of people's minds. Or for those of us who are more motivated by food, perhaps it's the Christmas dinner that pops into mind. And, or maybe it's the wreaths and the garlands and the decorations that go into it. Maybe it's the other things that, that uh, come along with uh, Christmas itself that would pop into our mind. Maybe it's uh, Christmas cards from friends and family. If anybody is crazy enough to have sent Christmas cards out already, 
You're supposed to wait a couple more weeks, right, so that it will just barely sneak in the day before. <laughs> Some of you are on the ball. I know that, and I th- thank God for you. Or maybe, maybe it's the nativity scene, right? Maybe, maybe that's what pops in your mind. What are, what are these things, what are the images that, that come to mind when we think of Christmas or when we think of Advent? My goal today during the, this message is to insinuate a new image among those other images of what comes to mind when you think of Advent. And this image is the most important image that ought to come to mind. And so to bring that image into focus, we really need to look at the, the trajectory of man in the whole Bible. So I've read here from Philippians chapter 2, but we're going to be turning all over the place. For example, we're going to be turning to Genesis chapter 1 in verses 26 and 27, a familiar passage where we read about creation in God's image, man being created in God's image. So if you flip back to Genesis chapter 1 and you look at that passage that we've covered and dealt with in our preaching through the series on Genesis, we read these words, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there in the first chapter, right off the bat in the book, we read about man God's creation of man, and specifically we read about man being created in the image of God. And we have dealt with that working through our series, but it's an important thing for us to have in mind. And the idea of image uh, will, will recur throughout Scripture itself. It becomes a theme that is developed in different ways with different significance, but it's important for us to understand what is the image of God. What it, does it mean that Man is created in the image of God. Well, it may convey two ideas, basically. The first idea it may convey is identity, the identity of man as the image of God. And a second aspect that I'm more confident in certainly conveys an aspect of function, the role man is to have. And so what is that identity? Well, there's been speculation about that through the years. And uh, rather than speculate... I can boil it down to this being man's identity, that we have a capacity to relate to God that is unique in all the created order. We have the capacity to relate to God in a unique way over against all of the created order. I think there's that aspect of what it means to be created in in God's image. So there's an aspect of identity perhaps, but certainly, and I'm more confident of this one, I see this one everywhere in Scripture, there's an aspect of function, the role that man has. And that is that the image of God serves as God's vice regent on the earth. Serving as God's vice regent on the earth. You, you saw that in verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and what are they to do? This isn't a new thing that's being said about man. It's an explanation of that thing that was said about man. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, etc. 
serving in God's place, as it were, serving as vice-regent for God, a, a, a deputy, a, a caretaker on the earth in God's place. And that's an aspect of the function that man has. And if you think about that, that's amazing. How was man created? Man was created in a, in a unique way. He was fashioned from dirt, from dust. God, having created all this other stuff, and, and here's dust, and he, he, he forms that together into the man, and he breathes into him life. So man, who comes from the dust, having very humble origins, is, is granted such, a, such a, a powerful position, such a beautiful position that man has. This role that we have on this earth is exalted. We're in a position that, that is unique and is glorious, and it's, it's particularly wonderful when you think about the fact that we, we came from, from dust. So what a glorious thing, what, a, what a, a picture of God's favor upon humanity, that of all these other things He created, and, and there are animals that are bigger and faster and stronger, and man is made from dirt and put in charge of the bigger and the faster and the stronger and all the animals. And so what an honor God bestowed upon man when He made him and made him that way. And of course, we know, as we've been focusing in Genesis, that it's only a couple of chapters before we get to the fall. And you have this situation where uh, mankind who's been created in such a way, he's been given such a role, he's been given such a relationship with God, that Adam and Eve didn't just have a capacity to relate to God. They had that relationship with God that was unique and that was personal and that was glorious. And of course, chapter 3 in the book comes, and we read about temptation entering in. We read about giving in to temptation. We read about, actually, now there's been a break in the relationship, not just between Adam and Eve, but between the two of them and God and between them and creation. There's a, there's a destruction. There's a shattering of the entire order and the way it was created to be. And, of course, it ends with them being kicked out. They no longer have access to the garden. They have been booted from it. There's been an angel placed there to keep them from going back in. And so, this one who was created to serve as vice-regent on the earth, this one who was created in the image of God after his likeness, does his best to destroy it. Three chapters in. And so, of course, the next thing you know in the Bible, you not have to read too far before you see that, that a sinful man who should be serving as God's image has begun to worship and serve other images instead. He's, he's begun to bow down to, to things that he fashioned out of a, out of a tree stump or, or out of rocks or, or out of some metal. He carved it or he cast it or he built it or, or he found it and he bows down to it, serving idols and serving images. And of course, as you continue reading in the Bible, you see that uh, by the time you get to Exodus chapter 20, where we were today in our Sunday school class, that, that Israel is absolutely forbidden that form of worship, and absolutely forbidden to worship any God besides the Lord alone. In the first and the second commandments there, we have very clear instructions that they are not to go down that path, that yes, the rest of the world goes that direction. They are not to be like that. They are to worship God only, and they are to worship God in the way He said to do. 
which did not include images, did not include idols and things like that. So they've been forbidden to do it, and, and not just are they forbidden to do it, but actually they, they have been given instructions. If you go later on in the book, you get to Numbers 33 and verse 52, and uh, they are given instructions that when you go into the promised land, there will be cultures and nations and religions there that will have these images that they are bowing down to. You are to tear them down, destroy them, these idolatrous images as you're taking over this land. And one reason that they were to do that is because if they left them there, it would eventually become a temptation to them. Well, this nation seemed to have this kind of power and seemed to have this kind of situation, so maybe if I bow down to their images, maybe if I worship their gods or worship God in the way that they have set aside, I can have something that they have and it can become a temptation for the people. And of course, we know the story. How does it happen? From earliest days, you see that idol worship becomes a thing in Israel. And not just a, a small thing in a corner somewhere, but you see that, that right here the people of God begin to bow down to these images, and it's going to be a theme that's common throughout the rest of the Old Testament. That they're worshiping idols, they're bowing down. And so, again and again, you see them falling into idolatry. What was so, what was so repugnant to God about idolatry? We can understand when man with his idol intends to worship another god, like an idol to Baal or an Asherah pole or some other means of worshiping another god, but God hates it when, when his people will use images, use idols to worship him. If you remember what happened with the golden calf incident, even while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the word from God, what's, what's going on down in the camp? Well, they, the people, of course, Moses' brother, into uh, building idols. And so Aaron fashions these idols, and what does he say when he does that? We're, we're worshiping the Lord by means of these idols. He says, we're bowing down and worshiping Yahweh. They think they're worshiping Yahweh who brought them out of Egypt, but they're doing so by means of these idols. And what does God think about that? Does he just overlook it? No, it's terrible. And so at the very beginning, the very beginning of the people, you see idolatry slip in. And I think part of that is because mankind, the very being specially designed to represent God in creation, instead searches far and wide for something else, for anything else that he can put in place as an image of God. And then he wants to worship that image. The vice regent has refused his office. He has turned traitor, and he's looking to appoint his own replacement. Well, the good news is that God does not leave us in that condition. Instead, God's people experience a kind of uh, restoration as God's image. Point two, if you'll open to Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, you'll see this is a continuation of this theme, how restoration, how redemption comes to uh, the people who have abandoned their post and who have found something else, anything else to stand in their place. We see a restoration of 
God's image in very special ways. And I think maybe to understand the importance of this, I want to I was thinking of when uh, my wife and I first moved, before we had kids, and we moved to Chicago to start Bible school. We were entering the path that was going to lead to, you know, ministry, to this blessed life of God's uh, special using of us and blessing of us in ministry. And and, uh, the very first week we moved to Chicago, we're just getting warmed up to this. I'm just about to go to class, and and, uh, we're just going to begin on this journey of, of special blessing from God and our car was stolen. Yeah, blessing from God, right? Car was stolen right out of the parking lot of our apartment building. There's nothing but glass laying around when we go down there. And so the, the police search for this car, and it's Chicago, it's a big city, and you know they're not going to find it. Well, they do actually find it. And so we get our car back, right? The problem was it had been taken for joy rides and uh, driven all over the place, and then when they got done with that, they just threw a bunch of wood in it, lit it up on fire, and burned the whole thing. Right? But we got our car back. (laughs) Did we just want our car back? No. We were really hoping for a car that would drive. (laughs) A car that would function, that would get us from point A to point B. Right? Something that would roll, actually, that we could park into our parking lot. Right? We didn't just want it back. We wanted it to function. We wanted it to function as it ought to have functioned. And what we see in the Bible is that when God saves a person, He not only restores them to rightful ownership, as it were, like the police restored to us our stolen and destroyed car. That, that, that's not all He does. Now, now, that would be wonderful if that were the case, that He, he forgives sins and He credits uh, Christ's righteousness to him, that, those, are, those are wonderful things, right? It's wonderful to be restored into God's presence. As if God is receiving us back, right, as it were, which by itself that would be fabulous enough, but that is not all. That is not the end. That we be received back, he also, not only does he do those things, but he also undertakes to restore that person in his identity and role as the image of God. He goes through the process of not just restoring the, the burnt-out shell of a car, but of rebuilding it, making it so that it does roll, and so that it has windows where it should have windows. It has upholstery again. And you can start it, and you can drive it. It runs. It functions as it ought to function. That is what God undertakes, not only the rescue mission, not only the the finding the car that's been stolen and restoring it, not not only uh, finding the sinner who who has been lost and bringing him back into relationship with God. That would be enough, wouldn't it? That would be glorious just to be there. But He also wants us to function a certain way. He also wants us to be restored. Colossians 3. Do not lie to one another, starting in verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There is a restoration process going on as well. Not only the redemption, not only the, the replacement and the, and the being put back into a proper uh, uh, possession 
of the person it ought to be uh, possessed by, but actually restored as well. God is renewing us in His image. He's restoring what was lost. He's healing what was marred. He's, he's straightening and aligning what was broken, what was bent. And because of God's restoring work, believers, again, are rightly and uniquely related to God as His children and once again serve as His representatives in creation, especially as we take the message of the gospel to the world around us, representing Him as His vice-regent. But our concern in this message this morning, those are, that's kind of a broad sketch of the trajectory But our concern in this message, though, is what is the key that makes the restoration possible? What is the key that makes even the redemption possible? And that key is Advent. When God the Son takes on man's likeness, when God comes in man's image, as it were, So we see point three there, Advent, God in man's image. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. This is the beauty of Advent. This is the, the wonder of Christmas that we perhaps don't often think about in the terms we ought to. Starting in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2, have this mind among yourselves. He's talking about how we relate to one another and how we ought to think of one another and, and what our mind, what our attitude ought to be. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. The miracle here is that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, eternally co-equal with the Father, took upon Himself man's nature. Remember man created from the dust? Took upon Himself man's nature only without the sin. That's the miracle That's the beauty. That's the the wonder. One pastor put it this way. If it was marvelous that God would make man in His image, it was more marvelous that God would be made in the image of man, that the eternal Word should become flesh and dwell among us, that we who were born after the image of earth might be born again in the image of heaven. For that deity should be clothed in dust, that the Ancient of Days should be born of a virgin, that the Holy One of Israel should be made in the likeness of sinful flesh, is mystery more than the heart of man can conceive or the tongue of an angel could profess. What a wonder that God the Son became one of us. We know us. We know ourselves. Scripture tells us our origin. We read about our fall and we see evidence of it in ourselves. 
And God the Son took on human flesh on Christmas Day. Verse 8, Philippians 2, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Son of God took on humanity to complete what Adam should have done. He became one of us to rectify Adam's disobedience. That Adam, serving as God's vice-regent, should have been obedient to God's command, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he should have protected the garden from any sinful and evil influence. That's what he should have done had he been serving as vice-regent as he ought. Instead, though, he allowed the evil influence into the garden to seduce his wife, to doubt God's word and eat the fruit, and then he, standing by, ate of the fruit himself. And Adam and Eve died, and we died. But Jesus, the very Son of God, when the time was right, took on the likeness of man being found in human form. And he who was entirely righteous and holy, the very image of the unseen God, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, who upholds the universe by the word of His power, according to Hebrews 1, that Jesus humbled Himself to go to the place of our punishment, the place of our greatest shame, the cross, and to stand where we should have stood and died the death that we deserve to die. But God raised him from the dead. And as Hebrews continues in verse 3, chapter 1, after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He came into this world born as one of us, a creature of the dust, obeyed where Adam should have obeyed, and yet went to the cross, the place of shame and punishment, where Adam should have gone, where you and I should have gone, and bore that in his body on the tree. God, who made man in his image, was made in the image of man in order to redeem his creation and restore him to fellowship with himself and the rightful role for which he had made him to be God's image, His vice-regent again on the earth. Well, so what's our application here? Why are we looking at the image of God in connection with Advent? I think this is the first point of application. We need to view ourselves as those who have been created and recreated in God's image, the hands and the mouthpiece of God in this world. That's who we are the hands and the mouthpiece of God in this world as his vice regent in this world. And so we are God's vice regents given the task of caring for one another's needs. And often that will mean sacrificing to help one another out. And at this time of year, as Pastor Woody said, there are many families, there are many in our midst who will struggle this Christmas season, particularly with the economy being what it is, other difficulties that are going on, there are, there are those in our midst who will suffer, who will struggle, who will not have a great Christmas. 
We have opportunity to come alongside those people, even in a sacrificial fashion, that we would maybe bring them to our Christmas dinner, that maybe uh, we would find that person in our midst who's, who's not going to have uh, much in the way of gifts or much in the way of fellowship or, or anything like that, and that we would, we would find them and we would encourage them and we would maybe give them a gift, that we would seek those who are in need in our midst and meet those needs. That's one of the ways we can be God's vice-regent in this world. We can serve as His image. And likewise, as those who have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation, let's go to the world around us and invite them in. Bring them in, not, not just to a dinner or, or, or something like that, but into this relationship with God, into this, this place where we have been redeemed, having peace with God. We're the ones who bear that message. We're those who have been given that opportunity to take the message of the gospel to the world around us. We are the vice regents in that sense. Like ambassadors who have a message from the one who sent us to a dying world around us. He didn't give that to angels. They would have obeyed perfectly and done a fabulous job. But he gave it to you. One who has been found on the south side of Chicago, wrecked and burned out. Tires blown and, 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 and everything burned up. And you've been brought back into relationship with God and you've been rebuilt and restored. And you are the one who bears that message to the world around us. That's us. Not, not a message given to angels, but given to fallible, fallen people like you and me. That's the plan that God has to bring discipleship to the nations and so let's take that message to the world around us. That's part of what God has called us to do. What He's recreated us to do is bring that message. And as our day and age confuses the meaning of Christmas more and more, I did this thing of several years ago where I, I did an internet search. I just typed in the word Christmas, and you know how it has autofill, and it'll give you suggestions of common searches. Well, I, I did that back seven or eight years ago, something like that just to see kind of what would, what would be the first 10 results. And then I did the same search uh, just Friday to see what the results would be. And they're different, and some of them are okay, and most of them are not. Most of them are, are, are uh, terrible distractions from what the message of Christmas is all about. Not once was there anything in there about, you know, the Christmas story or about Christmas and Christ or Christmas and its meaning. So as our world is confusing that message uh, all the more, let's be those who, who understand the truth of it. And let's be those who can, can help to clarify and explain to other people what Christmas is really all about. The importance of Advent when the Son of God was made in the likeness of man to redeem sinful humanity and give us peace with God. That's what Advent is about. So if I could have the men come forward, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is a proclamation of this same message. When we take the Lord's Supper together, it's not just a ritual that we do. It's a, it's a powerful and a visual and a tactile reminder of what Christ has done for us to redeem us, to bring us back into right relationship with God. 
It cost Jesus everything. And so, as we come to celebrate this in, in just a moment, this is, a, this is something that Christians celebrate. This is not for, for those who, who are on the outside looking in. If you're, if you're not a believer, if you're not sure about this, you, uh, you've never uh, trusted Christ, then I would encourage you just to let the elements pass and ask a question. Think about the things that we've talked about this morning. Think about the symbolism of the elements. Let them pass. Talk to one of us. This is for something, this is something that uh, Christians do as we celebrate what Christ has done for us. Likewise, as the elements are being passed, Christian, we have opportunity to, to think about why it was that it took the Son of God giving His very life to redeem you. Why did it take such drastic payment? for your sin. And as you contemplate, as you think about uh, your own sin, there's, there's sin that we can look far into the past and remember. But it, if we've confessed that, we've turned from that, there's forgiveness there, and, and we might feel a twinge. We might, but I'm talking about the, the sin that, that we still deal with as Christians. Though we are under the process of renovation, it's not done yet. And so we still have sin that we deal with. And what do we do with that? We do the same thing that we did with that other sin. We bring it to God and, and, and we confess it to Him. This is my sin and I'm sorry. And here, here it is and it's rebellion against you. I know that, but I confess it. I don't want it anymore. Please forgive me. And in Christ, God forgives you. So you have opportunity, even right now, as the elements are being passed around, as we're thinking about this, you have opportunity to, to confess your sin to God, and, and you will find when you do, Christian, He forgives you. You, you, you. you confess it to Him. You forsake it. You repent of it. I don't want it anymore. I want Jesus instead. You find forgiveness in Christ. And isn't there joy in that? See, some of you came in this morning with sin on you. And you, you've, I don't know what you've done this week. I, I wasn't watching you. I had no idea. But it's there. It's there. I know it because I know what we're like. Fallen creatures of the dust. Still undergoing renovation. And, and, and you came in with that and you thought, you know, with my sin, I'm just going to try and get through this morning and smile at the appropriate times so that I can get through my day. And, and, uh, and then I'll deal with this later. I can't really... Um, Deal with this right now. This is your opportunity to deal with this right now. Just lay it before God. Confess it as sin. And what's He going to do? He's going to forgive you. You want Jesus. You, want, you don't want that sin. You want Christ instead, Christian. So as you confess it, as you ask for forgiveness, you find forgiveness. And why are you able to find forgiveness, Christian? Why is it that you can walk out of here forgiven in a way that you did not walk in? It's because of what Christ has done. It's because of what this meal points to. Jesus has really paid it all for you, Christian. And that burden can be lifted. And that sin can be washed away. And that can be taken off your conscience. And you can have joy in Christ.
So first, men, if you would take up the bread. These elements have particular significance. There's nothing magical here. They, they themselves aren't wonderful in some way. They have significant meaning because they point us to Christ and what He has done. And Paul, talking of this and writing of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and verse 23, says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took up bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. This is the sacrifice. This points us to, this represents to us the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. Bearing in his body our wounds, our sins and paying the penalty on that cross for us. And so as we think of the bread, as we contemplate the bread, let's remember the body of Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we have before us the bread which represents the body of our Lord Jesus, given for us, broken for us. Father, I confess and we confess that we have need of this sacrifice. And we rejoice that Jesus paid that sacrifice, gave his body to be broken once for all. And what we celebrate here is, is a picture, is an image of that sacrifice. It's not a repeat of that sacrifice, but it points us to what Jesus did for us on the cross, and we rejoice in it. That by His payment in our place, we get to have forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the body of Christ broken for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next, we come to the cup. We could take up the cup. Paul continues, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant is what God accomplishes for us when Jesus obeys in our place because we haven't, and then gives his own life in our place so that we don't have to pay that penalty. And then he credits to us the righteousness that he has, that we get to stand in God's presence as those who have been forgiven, have been made right before him because of what Christ has done. And this is ours, not by our obedience, not by something we accomplish. It's ours by faith. And so we praise God for that new covenant. And Paul says here that that new covenant is bought for us, accomplished for us with the blood of Christ represented in this cup. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that our standing before you by faith in Christ is not dependent upon our obedience to you because we have not rendered the obedience we ought, but Jesus did, obeying for us, obeying uh, your law, all expectations upon him, he fulfilled. And then as if guilty, though being innocent, he went to the cross because we are guilty to pay that penalty for us to bear the wrath of God that we deserve in His own body, shedding His blood, that we, by simple faith in Christ, have right relationship with You, being forgiven and counted righteous. So we praise You for this new covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.
Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so I have a a great privilege at this point to remind you, to tell you that if you have truly trusted in Christ, you've repented from your sins, then because of what Christ has accomplished, which we just pictured, your sins are forgiven. Praise God. I don't, I feel an obligation, I hate to quit on Philippians chapter 2 without getting to the bottom of it. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in these truths that we have heard today. We are humbled and we rejoice that you would send your Son to take on our form, to obey and suffer in our place, that we might be redeemed, that we might be restored, that we might be recreated. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Advent and what it points us to. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus. I pray, Father, as we go out from here, that we would encourage one another with these truths, that we would direct one another to you, that we would receive that encouragement from one another, and that we would take this saving message of the gospel to the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family up front who would love to uh, pray with you if you uh, want to pray with them. I would encourage you also that this is the Sunday of the month where we take the benevolence offering. So you can leave a benevolence offering in the box in the back or the plate in the foyer. Thank you for being with us today. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.